Book of Ruth, chapter 1, reading from the opening verse. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilian died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. We'll end our reading at verse 18, and we'll bow together in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that thou wilt bless us as we turn to the truth of thy word. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We know those wondrous things are there. We know this is a book, O God, through which thou dost speak. And so we say to thee, Lord, speak. Speak to my heart. Speak to every heart. Make our hearts inclined to thy truth. Make our hearts obedient to thy truth. Help us to put into practice the things that we are taught from thy holy word. Hear and answer prayer. Forgive us our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. My text is found in the opening part of verse 2 of Ruth chapter 1. You might think when I give you the text, 
that it's somewhat incomplete. Uh, but my text is this. And the name of the man was Elimelech. The name of the man was Elimelech. This book of Ruth is set, as we discover in the opening verse, in the time of the judges. Uh, that age lasted approximately 400 years, although I have seen in some commentaries uh, that it might have been as short as 180 years. I don't think that that is correct, but um, uh, I think probably the 400 years uh, is more representative uh, of what the commentators believe. Uh, some of the judges, you see, may have overlapped. That's why uh, that some reduce it to 180 years and others see it as stretching to some 400 years. You think of that, how far back that would take us in time, back to the time of the Puritans. So it's a long period of time. Uh, we tend to think of the book of Judges as being a book of apostasy after apostasy. Uh, but if you read through it, you will find uh, that after the apostasy had been judged and sin had been dealt with in the nation, there were long periods of peace. One stretches to some 80 years, another stretches to 40 years. And so uh, time and again, in spite of the failures of the people, uh, God raised up a judge, he dealt with the sin, and then there was a time of walking with God and a time of peace in the nation. Of course, human nature being what it is, you discover uh, that after a period, uh, things begin to decline, they're allowed to slip, and then there's trouble and there's sorrow and there is disaster. We see the same uh, in our own time. God blesses us, we go forward, we're rejoicing, uh, we're experiencing the power of the Holy Ghost in our midst, and then we just allow things to slip a little bit at a time. And before we know where we are, we have lost so much. In Proverbs we read, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little dozing off. And what do you see? Uh, well, a little folding of the hands to sleep is added. Uh, so shall thy poverty come, as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. The traveler doesn't stop, he's on the move. Time doesn't stand still for us when we start to slip. And your want as an armed man, the armed man moves in, he takes your goods away, he's gone. In a flash of lightning, we might say, well, that's how quickly we can lose out with God. And when we lose out with God, because God cares, he judges us. Because he cares, he chastens us. And we read of a time of famine here in the time of the judges. A famine in the land. And notice, there's a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means a house of bread. Uh, and Ephrata, which is joined to it, has the idea of fruitfulness. There's no fruitfulness uh, where fruitfulness is suggestive to us by the name of Ephrata. Uh, there is no bread in the place uh, that is known as a house of bread. Uh, and that was a disaster of falling away from God and turning uh, one's back to God. In this book, a domestic situation is focused on. You see, a famine's a general thing. 
And you can read of famine, you can see the overall pictures, but sometimes it's good just to stop and to focus on one or two. And here we focus on a family. Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and his two sons, Malon and Kilion. And I'm going to focus even more because I'm going to focus on the first words, as I've indicated to you, of verse 2. And the name of the man was Elimelech. Uh, So it's a very narrow focus. And I hope I shall be able uh, to explain my thinking in choosing this text. Uh, The first thing that I want you to see is this. This man, Elimelech, failed to live up to his name. That's why I'm uh, choosing this very narrow uh, section uh, to uh, concentrate upon this evening. Uh, His name means God is king or my God is king. And I'm suggesting to you in this first point that he didn't live up to that name. You think of Elimelech when he was growing up. Every time his name was spoken, he knew what that name meant. My God is king. And when his mum called him or his dad spoke to him, Elimelech, he was reminded, my God is king. We might say that was drilled into him uh, from his birth. Uh, His first recollection of his name, it said to him, your God is king. Your God is king. But during the famine, Elimelech didn't act as if God were his king. There was a famine in the land. There was a famine in Bethlehem. What could he have done? Uh, If he were concerned about his family, he could have gone to another part of Israel. The famine mightn't have been as dire in other parts. And of course, there might have been some parts of the land that were relatively untouched by the famine. But he didn't go there. He might have stayed even and trusted God uh, because God is his king according to his name. He doesn't do that. We find that when Naomi came back with her daughter-in-law Ruth that there was food that people had survived. There was Boaz there and he was a mighty man of wealth reaping a tremendous harvest in his fields. And uh, that's only a few years later that Uh, That tremendous harvest is being reaped. He could have stayed. He could have trusted God. He didn't. Could have gone to other parts of Israel, perhaps where there was more food to spare. He didn't do that. What did he do? Instead, he went to Moab. And what a place to go with his wife and to go with his family. Moab was a land of idolatry. They worshipped the god Chemosh. And some people believe that Chemosh is the same God as the God of the Ammonites, the God Moloch. And Moloch uh, was a brass figure, an iron figure. Uh, Maybe I'm mixing up my metals here, but uh, an iron-clad figure. Uh, And it had outstretched arms. And at its feet, uh, there was a furnace burning Uh, And the parents offered their children, their infants, uh, some of their infants, to appease the god Moloch. Now, when the the child was placed in Moloch's arms, it fell through its arms and it fell into that furnace beneath. In order to drown out the screams of the child, loud music was played. 
You say, what a cruel thing. What a terrible thing. And if I may just slightly digress, don't we see something similar in our nation and in your nation today uh, with the abortion of children? Uh, We're told the mother should have power over her own womb. It's her right to decide. And people will be voting uh, in your nation on Tuesday. And one of the factors that will uh, persuade people to vote will be uh, the woman's right uh, to choose the woman's right of control over her own body. And there is no thought of that poor child. Uh, And I remember during the referendum in the Republic of Ireland uh, regarding abortion, some images were put up uh, on billboards to show what happens to a child that is aborted. Great exception uh, was taken to those images. And I was listening to a radio discussion, uh, and during that radio discussion, uh, one man who was anti-abortion but wasn't pro the posters that were being put up, he was queried uh, about those posters. And he said, well, uh, he wouldn't have been in favour of the posters, but he said, what's happening to those children? Those unborn children is far worse. The posters are merely depicting what is happening. What is actually happening is far worse. So we're almost back uh, to uh, what was taking place in Moab uh, and also uh, in uh, the country of the Ammonites, the sacrifice of the children. And uh, we find later on in Israel, in the time of Manasseh, that he offered children uh, in sacrifice to idols. It's a terrible thing. Here is this man, Elimelech. He can stay in Israel. He can trust God. He can move to another part other than Bethlehem. But he chooses to go to a land of heathen idolatry. Others stayed. They survived. He went. And he was taking his family away from the true worship of God into that land of heathen, pagan idolatry. Now you might say, why would he do that? Why would he go away from Bethlehem? And why would he not live up to his name and trust in God that God will provide for him? Well, there is a clue in the strange names of his two sons. The name Malon means sickness and the name Kilian means consumption or tuberculosis uh, in modern terms or TB for short. So he has two sons and uh, we see these sons and described by their names, they are unhealthy boys. And, and what do you expect? During a time of famine, the weakest, uh, as we would see it, will go to the wall. The elderly, the frail, and two boys, Malin and Killian, they will be vulnerable. Here is Elimelech, he's faced with a dilemma. And he speaks to his wife, no doubt, and they confer, and they think about their sons, and they're saying, well, uh, there's a famine in the land, our boys are not healthy at the best of times, what can we do? Uh, We should go to somewhere where there is food. We'll just go there for a short time. That word sojourn has that force, and I'll mention that in a moment or two. Uh, We'll just go there for a short time until the famine has come to an end, and then we'll come back again to Bethlehem. We'll settle down here and bring up our boys in this land. He doesn't live up to his name, uh, and that is a very sad thing. Of course, how many times do we follow in his footsteps. 
How many times do you and I fail to live up to the precious name that is given to us? We're called Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, yet many, many times we fail. And we can say that faith is only as strong as it is in a crisis. There are people and they they, they talk very well. And if you listen to them, you think they have faith that could remove mountains. They're way ahead of you in spirituality and you feel a pygmy in comparison with the giants that they are in the faith. But very often, a crisis searches them out and you discover they're not as strong as you thought they were and they're not as strong as they thought they were. I take an example from the very best of people, the disciples of Jesus Christ. When Christ was going across with his disciples, the Sea of Galilee, a tremendous storm blew up. Some people believe it was whipped up by the devil because Christ was going across that sea to the region of Gadara. And he had a purpose in going there to cast out a legion of devils from the demoniac of Gadara. Well, there's a storm. Jesus is unperturbed. He's resting. He's fast asleep at the back part of the ship. And the disciples, hardened fishermen, many of them, they were alarmed. They thought they were going to die. And they ran to Christ and they shook him up and they said, Master, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus stood up in the boat, calm, and he rebuked the wind and the sea. He said, peace be still, and there was a great calm. Now it's interesting if you compare the gospel accounts uh, to see uh, how Christ addressed the disciples. In Matthew's gospel, he is heard to say, O ye of little faith. Would you have thought that? Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Matthew, uh, and uh, all the other disciples. O ye of little faith. They have been in the presence of Christ, the Son of God. He has performed already mighty miracles. Yet he says to them, O ye of little faith. And in Luke's gospel, uh, it's phrased slightly different. He says to them, Where is your faith? They have little faith. Well, where is it? Even that little faith. Where is it now when there's a crisis? When there's a storm? On the Sea of Galilee. And then in Mark's gospel, he says to them, How is it that ye have no faith? Now, he's not saying that they have absolutely no faith. But they're not exercising any faith. How is it that you have no faith? That God will save you from the storm. When I'm on the ship with you. How is it that you've no faith? That you've such little faith? And where is it? Where is your faith now? When there's a crisis. When there's a storm. When there's trouble. And surely. Surely you and I. uh, Can respond. uh, And we can relate. uh, To that situation. Have there not been many, many times when the Lord might have said to you and me, oh ye of little faith. People say it almost uh, in a joking way. Uh, They're talking about some situation, they're boasting of themselves and you doubt them 
And they say, oh, ye of little faith. That's not the type of situation we're talking about here. It's when there's a crisis and we thought we had a lot of faith and now our faith just seems to disappear. It shrinks into nothingness and we're filled with fear. And someone outside who's not saved might look at us and say, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Uh, You speak of a great saviour, a glorious saviour, who will never leave us nor forsake us. And now when there's a problem and you're in a crisis situation, where is your faith? I I can speak for myself. And I can say that I I believe thousands upon thousands of times the Lord has, has blessed me and answered prayer. And yet I find that when I face a fresh crisis, my faith just seems to shrink almost into nothingness. And Christ could say, where is it? How is it that ye have no faith? And this is this man, Elimelech. He has a name. My God is king. He has heard that name for 30 or 40 years, depending on what age he is. And yet when the trouble comes, there's a crisis, he doesn't act as a man whose uh, king is God. He rather acts as a man who has no faith. He's not living up to his name. And there's many ways, uh, not only in a crisis, but in other situations in which we fail to live up to our name. Think of David. David's name means Beloved, he is greatly loved by God. God describes him as a man after his own heart. What a great man David was. I have a tremendous admiration for David. And that, well, that should be the same for all of us. And one thing that often grieves me is when David fell. I remember reading of a college lecturer and this man great man of God, it is said that every time when he read the account of David's fall into sin, that he sat there and tears coursed down his cheeks. He's a beloved of the Lord, and yet he failed the Lord most wretchedly. It all began when he was multiplying wives. Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us what the king was supposed to do when he came to the throne. He was to sit down and he was to write out the law of the Lord. And I remember in our college days in the theological hall, uh, Dr. Douglas uh, dealing with that. He was speaking about how when you sit down and write a thing out, it makes a greater impression upon your mind and your heart. Well, the king, he was required to sit down and he was to write out the laws of the Lord. He was to write out that the king should not go into Egypt to, uh, to get horses, to multiply horses. Uh, the, the animal of the king, uh, as Christ rode upon it, uh, was the donkey, the humble animal. Well, another law. He was not to multiply wives. And that's the very thing David did even before He came to the throne. Uh, We find him. He's married uh, to Michael, the daughter of Saul. She's taken from him, but he considers her still his wife. 
Then he marries Abigail, and he marries Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. And if you look at the sons of David to his wives, there are 19 sons, uh, not including the boy that died uh, in infancy, and not including the sons of his concubines, and he had daughters as well. He had a very large family because he had multiplied wives. And though he multiplied wives, yet at the same time he was never satisfied, for he saw Bathsheba, he lusted after her, he committed adultery with her to cover his crime. He he tried to, uh, we might say, foster the child on her husband, Uriah the Hittite. When that failed, he ordered really the death of Uriah. What a dreadful fall. Does he live up to his name? The beloved of the Lord. And I could go on and on. I'll mention one more. I'll mention Peter. He's an apostle. We've already seen him along with the others failing in the boat. Ye of little faith, where is your faith? How is it that ye have no faith? Well, he becomes very confident. After three and a half years in the presence of Christ, Christ says, one of you shall betray me. Uh, They're all suspicious of themselves. And then he speaks to Peter. And he says, uh, Peter, Satan desires to have you. He wants you, that he may sift you as wheat. I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Peter says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. He's very confident at this time. He's an apostle of the Lord. He has performed miracles because the apostles perform miracles. He has preached the word of God. He has seen lives transformed through his ministry. He's very confident. Here is Peter, the mighty man, the spokesman often for the twelve apostles. Christ says to him, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter says, though all men deny thee, Yet will I never deny thee. I'm ready. I'm ready to go with you to prison, to death. He's full of self-confidence. And then pressure falls upon him. When Jesus is arrested, uh, he becomes, uh, we might say, jumpy. And he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And Christ restores that ear. Uh, And then he's he's following afar off. And then he's warming himself uh, in the home of the high priest. Uh, And just a girl, a maid, a a servant of the high priest. She says, you're one of them, aren't you? And he denies, I don't know who you're talking about. And he denies three times. Peter, you're an apostle. Peter, you have been with Christ for three and a half years. Peter, you have a name amongst the apostles. But sadly, Peter, you have not lived up to your name and how true it is that we follow in Peter's steps we follow in David's steps I'm not saying we commit adultery but we follow in his steps we follow in Elimelech's steps many, many times we fail to live up to our name maybe we lose our temper somebody irritates us somebody gets on our nerves or we're cheated someone is unkind to us uh, or we have a problem that we can't solve 
And immediately there's panic. Uh, if somebody hurts us, we, uh, we try to get our own back. There's the idea of revenge. And, and we, we almost make ourselves judges. While the law in the Old Testament is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, and that's judicial, that the punishment meets the crime. And not necessarily in this day and age, you pull out an eye or pluck it out or uh, you cut off a hand and so on. But the punishment's to fit the crime. Well, we appoint ourselves judges. I'll get my own back on you. I'll have revenge on you. What are we doing? We're not living up to our name. And the second point I want to make is this. When someone fails to live up to his or her name, there is no telling where it is going to stop. Think of Elimelech. His name, remind you of it, my God is king. He doesn't live up to it. And he decides he will go to sojourn uh, in the land uh, of the Moabites. Well, that word sojourn means to spend a short time. I'm sojourning here uh, in Phoenix in Arizona. Uh, my home isn't here. And uh, uh, my home... I'm going to tease you and say, my home is in a better land. Craig will tell you that as well. Uh, And uh, uh, after a few weeks, uh, if I survive being with you, uh, I'll be going back uh, to my home. It's just a short stay. Uh, You go on a holiday or you go for work purposes. Uh, Sometimes students take a year out and they go traveling to a foreign country or maybe go around the world. They're sojourning. They know that one day they will return. He went to sojourn. He went to spend a short time in Moab. But verse 2 says, they continued there and continued there. So it's developing a little bit. A little bit longer now. They, They went to sojourn. They continued there. And Then at the end of verse 4, it says they dwelled there about 10 years. So 10 years have gone. And that's not the end of the story. Because uh, we find uh, that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And then we find in verse 5, and Malon and Killian died also both of them. So there's the three people, the three men of the family, and they're all dead. Elimelech, he went to sojourn. He dwelled there. We don't even know if he lived 10 years. Probably didn't. But he died there. His sons, they dwelled there. They died there. And 3,000 years later, let's come right up to date. 3,000 years later, they're still there. They're buried. Or perhaps... Uh, They are cremated or were cremated in Moab. So they've never left it. They they went to sojourn. They went to spend a few months, perhaps a year or two there. They dwelled there. Naomi was about 10 years there. But her husband and her sons, she left them behind in Moab. They never left that country. You see, what I'm saying to you is this. When you fail to live up to your name, there's no telling where it will end. You fail 
and you go down a slippery slope and you cannot tell where it will stop. Uh, one of our ministers, the Reverend William McRae, I was uh, speaking to our uh, brother about uh, that man today. Uh, he has a song. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. Yes, you don't intend when you start on that slippery slope to end up where you do end up. But once you start to go down, you lose control of the situation. You see, when you start to go away from the Lord, you're turning your back on the Spirit of God. He strives with you, but you resist him, you quench him, and you grieve him, and you lose his influence over your life, and you start to go down. As Samson went down, uh, when, when he began to compromise uh, and, and to do wrong, look at David. David never intended to commit adultery. Never intended when he multiplied wives. He never intended to murder Uriah. And yet that's how he ended up. David, David, that boy that, that slew Goliath, that was the darling of his people, that conducted himself wisely and won many battles. David, can it be that you murdered an innocent man? Can it be that you defiled that man's wife? Can it be that you, the man after God's own heart, behaved in such a despicable fashion? And what about Peter? I'll never deny you. I'll never deny you. All men may deny you. James and John may deny you. I'll never deny you. But Peter, what did you do with oaths and curses? And I'm not saying that these were the type of oaths and curses that you hear from the profane. The oaths may have been a solemn declaration. I swear, as it were, in the presence of God, that I don't know the man you're talking about. How low, Peter! How low can you say? And if they were profane oaths, using bad language to say that he didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know the man that you're speaking of. Peter, did you think you would go that far down? Well, of course not. And I've mentioned, I think it may have been at the midweek meeting, uh, Christian and hopeful in the pilgrim's progress when the way was rough. And they wanted an easier way out. They looked across into this meadow. And the grass was nice and soft. And vain confidence came into play. And they spoke to vain confidence. Does this lead to the celestial city? Our road's tough, it's hard. Does it lead to the celestial city? And vain confidence, what a picture of our vain confidence. Vain confidence says, yes it does. But they got lost in Bypass Meadow. Night fell. In the morning, giant despair found them. He took them to Doubting Castle. And, and what that is really suggesting by, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the book and, uh, by Bunyan is this. You go out of the way. And uh, you might think you're only going a little out of the way and you'll soon recover. You can very easily end up with 
your mind and heart filled with doubts so that you hardly know where you are. What a tragedy. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, the apostle tells us to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened, he says, through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, it's a wonderful thought there. The thought is this, exhorting one another daily, it says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Every day we need to be on our guard. You don't backslide all at once. It's by incremental steps, daily. Today I may be on fire for God. Tomorrow I may be 99% on fire for God. The next day 98%. But soon it comes down, it's 90% and it's 50% and it's 10% and I'm not on fire at all after a while. My heart's getting harder. Sin has deceived me. You don't backslide overnight, but the process can begin overnight. Think of Judas Iscariot, the man who was never saved. He was stealing, probably small amounts, but he was stealing. And that hardened his heart. He began to think less of Christ. He had thought of Christ as a great, probably... Uh, military leader uh, or one who would be a great sovereign and rule physically from Jerusalem and then he he lost that confidence it seems as if he doesn't want to do that but that's not his aim why am I following him and it led to betrayal for just 30 pieces of silver then remorse then suicide And the Bible phrases it very delicately. He went to his own place. His own place. It wasn't heaven. There's only one other. He lost his soul eternally. You see, when you fail to live up to your name, you don't stay close to the Lord, you gradually, you gradually lose your bearings and you do not know where it will stop. And then I'll say this, and I know my time has gone. Failure to live up to our name has consequences for other people. Here is Elimelech, my God is king. And I'll say this, he didn't do his sons any good. Inside ten years they were both dead. Remember the reason I've suggested for their shifting from Bethlehem to Moab? Our sons are sickly. Sickness, consumption... We should shift for the good of our sons. Give them a better chance of a healthy life. Uh, They'll not survive long in a famine. They didn't survive long outside of Bethlehem. They died young. And sadly, they married heathen women. I know one of them got saved. That's the grace of God. And I hope to to look at things like that in the next few weeks. Uh, My aim is to speak from the Song of Solomon on Sunday morning and from the book of Ruth on Sunday evening. Uh, They married heathen women and they died young. Uh, They were dead within 10 years and on top of that, while they were married, they died childless. May say also, he didn't do his beloved wife any good. I've no doubt that he loved his family, that he loved his wife. But if you come to the end of chapter 1 and you you find Naomi now coming back with Ruth to Bethlehem 
And it says, it says, it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? She's been gone for 10 years and she's so changed. They scarcely recognize her. Is this, is this Naomi? And her reply is, call me not Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For she says, the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. I went out full. Note that expression. She went out in a famine. She went out because with her husband they thought that that they might perish in the famine. And now she compares the way she went out with the way she comes back. And she says, it was fullness in comparison with how I feel and am now. I went out full. And she says, the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me and the Almighty hath afflicted me. She's dispirited. She has aged far more than 10 years in appearance. She's bedraggled. What a sad situation. She has been hurt. She has been hurt by the failure of her husband to live up to his name. Now, nobody wants to inflict hurt on themselves, and nobody wants to inflict hurt on those that are nearest and dearest to them. When we go astray, when we fail to live up to our name, we hurt other people. David hurt people. He hurt Nathan the prophet, who was his dear friend. Nathan had to come in and tell him the sad news. Thou art the man. The child will die. He hurt Bathsheba. He injured her interests. Of course he injured Uriah and brought about his death. We hurt the people of God. We even hurt the interests of the unsaved. David was told by this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Peter's Peter's failure to live up to his name hurt one person in particular, and that was Jesus Christ, his Saviour. Christ looked round when Peter had denied him for the third time. Christ looked round and there must have been a a look of great hurt in the face, in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it was so great that hurt that it hurt people, Peter in return. And the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. What grief, what grief Christ felt when Peter said with oaths and curses I know not the man of whom you speak so in conclusion think of this the Bible speaks of grieving the Holy Spirit our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and if we fail to live up to our name we cause immense injury uh, to the testimony of the gospel immense injury to those that we care most for. And worst of all, from our point of view, we cause immense injury to ourselves. Our consciences are wounded. Our spirits are broken. Surely we must want to live up to our name. And what we've got to do, we've got to be filled with the Spirit. For the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit. And the command there is in the continuous 
present imperative, which means keep being filled with the Spirit. It's not enough that I was filled with the Spirit yesterday or last week or last year or when I was saved or just after I was saved. I need to keep being filled. I need to keep asking God to fill me with the Spirit. And I need to make a surrender of my life to God. We read in Romans 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We don't want to be like Elimelech in this respect. We want to live up to that precious name. And if you don't know that name, there are those who do not know that name. Well, they'll disgrace the poor name that they already have. They need to come to Christ. Taste and see the Lord is good. Take upon themselves the precious name of the Saviour and then walk in the centre of his will. Let's bow together in a closing word of prayer. We'll not sing a closing hymn because I've overshot the runway and have gone beyond my time. Lord, we pray that thou wilt apply thy truth to all of our hearts. We have been singing that hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. Grant us that closer walk. Grant us grace that we might not fail thee. Grant us grace to live up to the precious name that we bear. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt dismiss us now in thy fear, with thy love and blessing. Spread thy covering wings around us till all our wanderings cease. And at our Father's loved abode, those who belong to Christ arrive in peace. For we pray in his holy name. Amen.